Good morning. A little chilly this morning, huh? Y'all are bundled up. <laughs> hey, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the book of Genesis. You know, one of the realities of life is that life is just so unpredictable. Have you noticed that? <laughs> it's just so wildly unpredictable. Yeah, there's trends, of course. If you look at a macro macro level, yeah, there's trends. But at a personal level, a lot of times, life is very unpredictable. Your life and my life can be rolling along. And you can be in a really good season of life, and then the very next day, everything can change. The very next thing, the very next day, everything can change. Overnight, you can be thrown into a fiery crucible. The doctor can confirm that it's cancer. Your spouse can up and leave you. Your children can be snatched from you. All of it can change just like that. And you never know, we never know when the tests of faith are going to come about. And all of the Lord's tests, I don't know if you've noticed, but all of the Lord's tests are pop quizzes. Which is a real bummer. Because you'd like, you'd, you'd like to think that he'd give you a little bit of a fair warning. But he doesn't. They're all pop quizzes. They're placed before you whether you're ready or not. The Lord doesn't tell us beforehand, hey, I'm going to give you an exam in six months. You know why he doesn't do that? It's because you would treat your relationship with the Lord just like you treated your college or high school study material. What did you do? Well, if you were anything like me, you heard about an exam coming and then you lived your life as if the exam wasn't actually going to come. And then the night before, you crammed really hard. And then the day after, you crashed really hard. And that's what we would do with the Lord. If if he told us, hey, an exam's coming, you'd say, okay, great, Lord. And then you'd crash, or you'd cram really hard right before it, and then you'd crash really hard the day after it. No, 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 much better, much better to live consistently with the Lord, which is called faith, to live faithfully before the Lord, learning the real lessons of life with him, Applying the wisdom of the word and trusting him through the test. That's how it should be done. And on the other side of the tests, there comes strength and wisdom, maturity and grace. This is how it's supposed to be. And this is exactly what we see in Abraham's, uh, the, Abraham's life. We see exactly this in Abraham's life. Abraham's life. For the last 10 years or so, at this point when we get to Genesis chapter 22, the last 10, at least 10 years of his life has been a really sweet season as he's watched Isaac, the child of promise, grow. At least 10 years, he's watched the child of promise, Isaac, grow from a, a, a young boy to a older man, a young, a young man at least. It's at least 10 years. Some commentators actually will say up to 30 years. Time between uh, the end of chapter 21 and the beginning of chapter 22. So for at least 10 years, everything is going really well for Abraham. Isaac is growing. He's developing into a young man. His wife, Sarai, is happy. The 
uh, she her dreams have been fulfilled with the birth of Isaac. And so he's in a really sweet season for at least 10 years. And then the supreme test of his faith comes. And he's he's not told about it beforehand. This is a pop quiz. He's not told about it. It just comes. And it hits him th- it hits him like a thunderbolt. So turn with me Genesis chapter 22. We've been this is our 12th week looking into and examining the life of Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12 through 21, we've seen Abraham's life being lived out. And I, I, I'm hesitant to do this to you, um, but I want to go back and I want to remind you of what, we, what we've seen in Abraham's life up to this point. And here's the reason why. Because if you disconnect his life of faith, chapters 12 through 21, if you disconnect his life of faith from the supreme test of faith, that we're going to see today, his act of faith in the middle of chapter 22 will look irrational. It'll look nothing more than blind faith. You see, if you strip the supreme test of faith in 22 from Abraham's life of faith in chapters 12 to 21, what you're left with is irrational faith. You're left with thinking that faith devoid of reason is actually a good thing. That's what you're left with. So let me take a couple of moments. We got time. Let me take a couple of moments and situate you, situate this supreme test of Abraham's life into the larger context of Abraham's life of faith and his dealings with the Lord. And the, the Abraham narratives begin, you know this, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Genesis chapter 12, where the Lord calls Abraham at the age of 75 to leave his homeland. For he and his wife to leave his homeland, to leave their, uh, to leave their land and to go to a new, to go to a new area. And he doesn't know where yet. We're told later in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, when the Lord called him to step out, he stepped out in faith and he trusted the Lord and the Lord guided him. And additionally, the Lord to- gave him these inc- immense promises. The Lord told Abram, who at the time, 75 years old, had no children. And the Lord tells him, he's going to make him a great nation. It will be a great nation that will come out of Abraham. So great, there will be numerous offspring. And that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham's line. That's a remarkable promise. And again, upon hearing it, he and Sarah... His wife, Sarai, they set out. And, and also uh, Lot, his nephew, they all three set out. And then in chapter 13, Abraham lets uh, his nephew Lot choose the first piece of land, which is an incredibly gracious act. And then sometime later, the Lord comes to him again, comes to Abraham again and speaks with him. And the Lord tells him once again that his offspring will be as numerous as the dust upon the earth. That's a lot. You're probably cleaning your house right now, getting for thanks, getting ready for Thanksgiving. How much dust is in your house? It's going to be a mad dash at my house starting tomorrow. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to be bossed around all day cleaning dust. This is, this is what happens the week of Thanksgiving. 
Well, the Lord tells him, your, your offspring is going to be as numerous as the dust upon the earth. And then he has Abraham walk the length and the, and the width of the promised land. It's like an enacted deed. He says, I want you to walk the whole thing. And everywhere you walk, everywhere your foot steps, that's going to be yours. And it's for you and your offspring forever. So the Lord appears to him again and speaks with him again. And the next thing we see is Abraham is at the Oaks of Mamre. And he builds an altar. And there he worships the Lord. Chapter 14. Abraham rescues Lot from foreign kings in battle. And after the battle, he meets Melchizedek, the king priest of Salem. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And he credits Abraham's victory not to Abraham, to Abraham's genius, but to God Most High. And the next thing we see is Abraham offers 10% of the, the spoils of, of war to the Lord in an offering. He says, the Lord has blessed me. I'm going to offer back to it a portion of the victory. So he gives, he offers 10% of it to the Lord in worship. Chapter 15. The Lord, the word of the Lord came to Abraham again in a vision. And again, he reaffirmed the promise of a child. The Lord brings him outside of his large Bedouin tents and he says, look up at the stars. Number the stars if you're able. And Abraham looks up at all these stars. He can't count them. Nobody can count them. And he says, so shall your offspring be. He says, this is as numerous as your offspring will be. And of course, it's a little figurative language, of course. But nevertheless, it's an incredible promise. And the next thing we read, Abraham believed the Lord. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now note, as a, just as a sidebar, note it wasn't any action on Abraham's behalf, on Abraham's, um, on Abraham's part that caused him to be considered righteous. There was no action on his part. It was straight belief. It was straight trust in the Lord's promise. It wasn't because he was circumcised, because circumcision wouldn't come for another 15 years. So it wasn't an act of, a, it wasn't an act of any action on his part. It was straight, sheer faith in the Lord's promise. It was his faith in the Lord that caused him to be considered righteous. By the way, that's exactly the same way believers in the New Testament are saved. They're saved not based on their obedience, but through faith in God's promise. Exactly the same way in the Old Testament, they believed God would keep his promise and send the Messiah. In the New Testament, we believe that God has sent his Messiah. He has kept that promise. The only difference is the Old Testament saints, they looked forward. The New Testament saints, they look back. But the faith is the same. Does that make sense? Okay, chapter 17. Abraham's, Abraham's 99 years old. So he's been journeying with the Lord now for 24 years. And the Lord changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Gives him the sign of uh, the covenant, which is circumcision. And you guys remember, nobody can forget this, that very day, he responds immediately, and he has his entire household circumcised that day. And again, the Lord tells him that the promised child would come through Sarah, and they're to name him Isaac. Chapters 18 and 19, the Lord takes Abraham into his confidence. The Lord gives him a preview of what's going to happen. He lets him know that the Lord's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And do you remember what Abraham does? He intercedes. 
on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, particularly for his nephew Lot and his family. But he intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he utters a very famous line. He says, will not the judge of the earth do what is just? Which means there's this deep confidence in Abraham who knows the Lord's character. He says, the Lord will do what is right. The Lord will do what is good. He has this just real quiet confidence. The, the judge of the earth will do what is just. He knows God's character. He knows he's going to do what's right. And then finally, in chapter 21, what we looked at last week, after decades of waiting, we saw Sarah miraculously conceive and give birth at the age of 90. Isaac is finally born. So after, tw- now put it all in perspective. After 25 years, 25 years of waiting on the promise, the promise was realized. And the word of God proved to be absolutely reliable. One of the main things that came out of last week is that the word of God is not devoid of power. His word is not void of power. What he says will come about will come about. And after Isaac was born, God appeared to Abraham again. He has another conversation with Abraham. And he promises, the Lord promises to Abraham that he will care for Ishmael and Hagar even after they're no longer under Abraham's care. And again, Abraham trusts the Lord and sends Ishmael and Hagar off. So now, after 25 years, Abraham has lived a life of faith. It's not perfect by any means, because we've seen, as we've studied the the Chronicles of Abraham, his, his faith is not perfect. His life has not been perfect. He's blown it on a number of occasions. And my hunch is, for those of you who have walked with the Lord for more than 25 years, you've probably blown it on a number of occasions. Is that true? (laughs) Yeah, that's true for all of us. And that's certainly the case for Abraham. But for over 25 years, he has lived a uniquely miraculous life of faith. Now, the reason I just spent 10 minutes on that, reviewing these accounts in Abraham's life, is because as we come into chapter 22, where the supreme test of his faith comes, you cannot divorce it from the previous 25 years of Abraham's life of faith. Because if you do, again, you'll be left to thinking that faith is irrational. And faith that's devoid of reason is actually a good thing. And that couldn't be further from the truth. So Genesis chapter two is, 22 is where we're going to be. It's the climax of the Abraham narratives. It's one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible, and it is generally regarded in ancient history, ancient narratives, as one of the high points of ancient narratives. And yet, it's one of the most troubling accounts that anybody will read in the Bible. It sends people into all sorts of just uh, scrambles in their mind. And so what we'll do is we'll read through the text, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the nature of Abraham's faith and what it eventually points to the nature of Abraham's faith, okay? Let's get going. Uh, Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. 
The Lord said to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So again, as I mentioned earlier, at least 10 years have gone by from the time that, that Isaac was weaned until this point. And again, nobody knows exactly the amount of time. As I mentioned earlier, some commentators um, say 20, maybe 30 years has passed by. He's an old enough guy at this point, Isaac is, that he can carry a sizable amount of wood for a fire up a mountainside. So he's he's a pretty strong guy at this point. So maybe he's 13, maybe he's 23, nobody really knows. He's called a young lad in the text. And young lad um, could be used for people upwards into their late 20s. And you think about it, um, if your dad is 100, you would be considered a young lad for a good chunk of your life. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I mean... Uh, we call we call boys today upwards to twelve, thirteen. We say, "Oh, he's still a boy," and we're forty or something. Forty, I'm forty-four. We'd call them that until they're until they're thirteen. If I'm in my hundreds, that guy's still a boy, long into his twenties. So we don't really know how old he is. He's old enough to carry a sufficient amount of wood up this hillside. So he's a strong guy at this point. Um, so, and the Lord comes to him and says, he poses this test to Abraham. And the, and the Hebrew word for tested, it doesn't mean to entice to do wrong. Rather, it means to test to see whether the thing or the person proves to be true. Proves to be genuine. Kind of like how uh, we test gold. We want to see if it's the real thing. And that's what the Lord's doing here. He's testing Abraham. And so the Lord calls Abraham to offer up the most precious thing in his life. His son, Isaac. The Lord tells him, look again, verse 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Because Isaac's the one who the covenant will come through. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and and offer him up there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. You see where it says there in verse 2, go to the land of Moriah? Uh, most scholars will tell you that that's, that's the place that King David would later purchase and where Solomon's temple will eventually be built, right there in Jerusalem. So Abraham is essentially supposed to go right to Jerusalem and there he's to offer up Isaac. And it's to be a burnt offering. And a burnt offering is something that's totally consumed. It shows a total commitment to the Lord. It signified a total commitment to the Lord. And again, this is the supreme test of Abraham's faith. And you, you read it and you think, well, well didn't, didn't God already know Abraham's devotion to him is true? Yeah, of course he did. But Abraham probably didn't know if his devotion to the Lord was totally true. You ever think, you ever have a test given to you? And you think you know the material before you take the test. And then you take the test and you realize you didn't know the material as well as you hoped you knew the material. You know what happens after that? That material is locked into your brain. 
It's one of the reasons we're given tests so darn frequently in school. It's because that material is locked into your brain. After you realize, I didn't know it as well as I thought I do. I knew a good portion of it, but I didn't know all of it. After you get the results back and you look at the material, that stuff is locked into your brain. And that's exactly what the Lord's doing with Abraham. He's going to prove, he's going to say, Abraham, I want you to see your faith. It's going to prove true. And Moses, what happens here? Beginning in verse three, he slows down the narrative. And he alerts us that this is a test. It's only a test. Remember the old emergency broadcast system on the radio? It would come on. You'd be driving your car someplace. I remember my dad would drive an old Toyota Corolla red one hatchback. And we were driving someplace, and it popped on the radio. And This is a test. This is only a test of the emergency broadcast system. Well, that's always what pops into mind. This is simply a test. Moses wants us to know this is only a test. God never intended to have Abraham actually sacrifice Isaac. Um, so this is a test. But Abraham doesn't know it. He doesn't know it's just a test. This call comes to him, and it must have come like a thunderbolt to him. What? You want me to do what, Lord? It shocks his senses. And you know what? That's the nature of testing, isn't it? It shocks us. We don't know all the details of the tests that come our way. We don't get all the details. It's not an open book quiz. We don't get all the details of, of what's going on. So we must respond in faith. We must apply the wisdom of the word of God. And the knowledge of our past experiences with them. Now put this command of God in light of the promises of God. Because this is where the test is. The command of God completely, it seems to completely contradict the promises of God. Does it not? The promises of God says that through Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through Isaac, Israel will come about. Through Isaac, the redemption of the world will happen. And then the command of God comes. You're to kill him. You're to offer him up to me as a burnt offering. That the command of God seems to contradict the promises of God. It seems to contradict all the covenantal promises to Abraham and, his, and the plans for redeeming the world. The command of God here seems to nullify the promises of God. Well, what will Abraham do? That's the tension right there. What will Abraham do with the command of God when it seems to contradict the promises of God? How will he respond? How will he move forward with the command of God in light of the promises of God? Well, the text tells us, look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Moses, again, he very intentionally slows down the, the narrative. He's building this tension. He says he, he puts the saddle on his donkey with every strap of the saddle, every, uh, every cut of a piece of wood, with every step towards 
Moriah, Abraham must have died a thousand internal deaths. I mean, I mean, every, every just cutting of the wood, just, just constant repetition. You can do it without really thinking. You can do it while thinking about something else. He's cutting it thinking, I'm going to offer my son on this wood. This is going to be a burnt offering. Every step he takes towards Moriah, he's thinking, I'm going to offer up my son. His heart is filled with anguish. He's thinking all these terrible thoughts. He's contemplating, how is the promise going to come about if I'm going to offer my son, if I'm going to follow through with this command? But he proceeds. Notice that. He proceeds. He moves forward, trusting the Lord. So he gets Isaac and a couple of guys, and they make their way towards a Moriah, which is about a 50-mile trek. So they make this roughly 50-mile trek from Beersheba, to Moriah. And on the third day, he looks up and he sees it in the distance. Look at verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, and some of your translations will say young lad, some will say young man. Stay here with the donkey. I and the young, young lad will go over there and will worship. And will come again to you. We'll come back to you. And verse 6, And Abraham took the wood, took the wood of the burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. So they set off with Isaac carrying the wood, probably strapped to his back, and it's just the two of them now. It's the father and the son. Imagine the tension that Isaac's got to be feeling. Every step, the tension grows. The silence, as Moses tells the story, the silence is impressive. It's just a, completely oppressive. And no doubt, you know, Isaac's done this before. They've, they've worshipped the Lord with burnt offerings before. They've, he's gone to worship before with his father. He knows the routine of burnt offerings. But he also knows something's missing. And so finally... Isaac breaks the silence by naming the elephant in the room. Look at the second part of verse uh, verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he responds, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? He pinpoints it. By the way, isn't it amazing how our children have a way of naming the very issues we're trying to avoid? <laughs> this is classic children stuff. I mean, we're, we're in our house, we're always trying to avoid certain issues, and our kids are always naming them out loud, like, hey, let's talk about this. And we're like, no, this is what, what, what Isaac does here. He has a knack for naming the very issue that, that Abraham's trying to avoid. And this innocent question must have crushed Abraham when he heard it. Just a knife to his heart. But look at his response. His response reveals his quiet confidence in the Lord. Look at verse 8. Abraham said to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God's going to provide it. In the Hebrew, it it could be translated, God will see to it, my son. God will see to it. It's just like um, when you have a person in your life who you really trust and they give you their word on something 
And we use the language, even if you don't know how it's going to come about, we use the language, I don't know when, I don't know how, but he gave me his word and he'll see to it. That's the sense that Abraham has here. He says, God will see to it. God will provide. It's that type of feeling that Abraham has here. But multiply it by the supernatural. Because remember, Isaac is the promised child who was given to Abraham and Sarah after 25 years of waiting on the promise with them being well past their childbearing years. So Abraham says, I can trust the Lord. He's going to provide. He has always come through. There's never been a time in my life of 25 years of walking with the Lord, Abraham's thinking, where he hasn't provided. I'm going to trust him. Even in the midst of this call, I'm going to completely trust him. As hard as it is, as hard as it is to put one step in front of the other right now, I'm going to trust him. Let me ask you this. Has there been moments in your life where the hardest thing you have to do is put one foot in front of the other and trust the Lord? Has that been the case in your life? I look at some of you guys. I know some of your stories, and I know that's true. One foot in front of the other, I'm going to trust the Lord. He has been there for me in the past. He will be there for me in the present. I know he will be there for me in the future. That's Isaac, right? Or that's Abraham right now. I don't know how, Lord. I don't know what this is going to look like, but I'm going to trust you. And if all I can do is put this foot in front of the other, then that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to move forward and I'm going to trust you. That's the first step of Abraham's faith right there. And maybe for some of you, and I don't know what trials you're going through right now. Maybe that's all you need to hear in this sermon. It's just right there. I don't know what you're going through. You may just think to yourself, if all I can do is put one foot in front of the other for this next season, I will do that, Lord. I will trust you and I will move forward, not knowing the outcome of what's going to come about. But I'm going to trust you moving forward. That's the nature of faith. And we see that with Abraham here. It continues, though. Look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. Hmm. Just must have been excruciating to build it. He built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Um, Isaac, he, he completely trusts his father to such a degree that he willingly lets himself be bound. This, again, this is not passivity. This is not him being too weak to stop his father. If he's a young guy, teenage guy, even a little bit older, and his dad's in his hundreds, you would think he'd be able to stop his father if he wanted to. What this is, so it's not, it's not passivity, it's not weakness. We already know he's strong enough to carry a sufficient amount of wood up a hillside. This is a son putting his complete confidence, he has complete trust in his father. And he's resting, Isaac too, is resting in the, providence, the provision of God. His father has said, well, the Lord will provide. And the father, when he speaks to the son, this is true of fathers and sons. When the father walks in faith and has a lifetime of walking in faith, that builds into their sons the nature of faith. And that's what's taking place here with Isaac. He's saying, okay, I trust my dad completely. He said the Lord's going to provide. I will, I will live this out as well. I will trust the Lord to provide. And then the dreadful moment arrives. Look at verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand 
and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you really worship God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So Abraham passed the supreme test of his faith. He, God allowed this to play out to the very last second to see Abraham's faith. And then with that, the Lord did exactly what he told, uh, what Abraham told Isaac he would do. He provided a sacrificial lamb. Look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Oh, amazing. The radical obedience of Abraham is met with the radical commitment of the Lord to provide and to fulfill his promises. The Lord's word will not, the Lord's word is not devoid of power. He is committed to this promise. And the angel, verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. There's nobody else, no, no higher authority than the Lord himself. So he says, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. And you have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. Um, just note that obedience is where blessing is found. That obedience is where God's blessing is found. We read in verse 16 and 17, because you have done this, I will surely bless you. When Abraham raised up that knife, he must have thought that he was killing God's blessing since the blessing was to come through Isaac. But it was actually just the opposite of that. He wasn't killing off God's blessing. Again, we read, because you have done this, I will surely bless you. Meaning when we take steps of obedience, when we take steps of obedience into a dark place, it may look oftentimes like it's the end of joy and hope. But in reality, it's actually the place where joy and hope is, is really found, just as it was for Abraham. So the Lord blesses Abraham. He again reaffirms that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then Moses concludes the account by saying this in verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose, and they went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. And the account stops right there, and we'll do the same. Okay, here's what I want to do with the remaining time we have. I want to go back, and I want to see what we can learn about Abraham's faith. 
Because Abraham is known as the father of faith. And in this account, we see the supreme test of his faith. So what do we learn about the nature of faith through Abraham's life? There's three things. Here's the first one. Write it down if you're a note taker. His faith is completely reasonable. His faith is completely reasonable. What we see in this account is faith is not blind. His faith is not blind faith. It's not irrational. It's not illogical. It's a completely reasoned faith. How? Well, here's how. Because it's anchored in the past work of God. It's anchored in the past work of God, which for 25 years, which is why I had, we reviewed chapters 12 through 21. For 25 years, Abraham has seen time and time again how the Lord has proven himself to be faithful. How the Lord has shown himself to be completely trustworthy. So at this critical moment, in the supreme test of Abraham's life, he's able to trust the Lord and move towards Moriah and not away from it. So it's anchored in the past work of God. It's confident in the present love of God. It's anchored in the past work of God. It's confident in the present love of God. Did you notice in the text there were two places where Abraham's faith was revealed? Where Abraham's faith in God's love for him was revealed? It says in verse 5, go ahead and look at it. In verse 5, he tells the young guys who came with him and Isaac, he says, stay here with the donkey. I and the young lad will go over there and worship and then we're going to come back to you. Well, that reveals something about Abraham's faith, doesn't it? He's completely confident that the Lord's not going to abandon him. He's confident in the Lord's love. And then in verse 8, when, Isaac's, when Isaac asks the question, Hey, Dad, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham responds, God will see to it, my son. Again, he reveals he's completely confident in the Lord's love for him. Because of the Lord's past faithfulness to Abraham, it gives him confidence, even when he's not sure how it's all going to work out, but it gives him confidence in the present love of God, that the Lord is not going to abandon him in the midst of this trial. So why is it reasonable? Well, it's anchored in the past work of God. It's confident in the present love of God. It's focused on the future glory of God. It's focused on the future glory of God. The only way he's able to make it up that hill, when he's walking to what he thinks in this test is a, is a burnt offering of, the, of his son, the only way he's able to walk up that hill is because, of course, the, the past work of God, the, uh, the, the, the confidence in the present love of God, but also the, he's focused on the future glory of God. He must tell himself a thousand times with each step, Lord, I don't fully understand this. I don't even like this scenario, Lord. I don't fully understand it. I don't like it. I don't know how this is going to play out. But it must be for my good and your ultimate glory. And I'm going to focus on that. Because whatever you've called me into here, Lord, you're going to see me through it. It must be for my good and your ultimate glory. So I'm going to trust you, Lord, completely. And again, some of you are in a huge trial right now. Some of your, some of your faiths are being tested right now. Your faith in the Lord is being tested right now. Well, what's the way forward? It's right here. It's right here. Be anchored. You have to go back and anchor yourself in the past work of God in your life. You have to go back and remember, the Lord has been faithful to me in the past. 
I have this long experience of walking with the Lord and he has been faithful every step of the way. And the longer you live, the longer that record is. Well, you can look back on your life and you can say, he has been faithful here. He's shown himself to be faithful time and time and time again. He's been faithful in the past. I'm anchored in the past work of God, which will stabilize you in the present. It will stabilize you in the present for the, the present love of God. He will not abandon you. And it will enable you to focus on the future glory of God. Saying, Lord, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know the end right now, Lord, but I trust you. And because you're completely committed to me, all the way to the cross, you've been committed to me. Ultimately, this is going to be for my good and your glory. So this was not blind faith on Abraham's part, which is what a lot of people think. It was not blind faith. It was reasoned faith. In fact, this is what the author of Hebrews tells us. Tells us, And in Hebrews chapter 11, I won't, I won't make you turn there for lack of time. But in he, Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews says this about the nature of Abraham's faith. He says this, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham, now catch this, Abraham reasoned. Some of your translations there, it'll say Abraham considered. This was not blind faith. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. It's Hebrews chapter 11. So again, his faith was not blind, dumb, irrational faith on Abraham's part. Which is how a lot of people throughout history have seen this account. Um, they've looked at this account. A lot of unbelievers have looked at this account, and they wish it weren't even in the Bible. They will look at it and say, well, this is completely irrational. They should be taken out of the Scriptures altogether. This was, this was not a leap of faith. Was, this was not a leap taken in despair. But it was a rational, faith-filled act on behalf of Abraham. Listen to what Francis Schaeffer says on this, in regard to this. Schaeffer writes... And he's writing in response to Soren Kierkegaard, who was the Danish philosopher in the 1800s. Kierkegaard said this, this whole act of Abraham in Genesis chapter 2 was irrational. And he wished it wasn't in the scriptures. So Schaefer writes this. He says, Kierkegaard said that this act of faith, uh, that Kierkegaard said this was an act of faith with nothing rational to base it upon or to which to relate it. Out of this came the modern concept of a leap of faith and the total separation of rationality and faith. In this thinking concerning Abraham, Kierkegaard had not read the Bible carefully enough. Before Abraham was asked to move towards the sacrifice of Isaac, which of course God did not allow to be consummated, he had much, now catch this, he had much propositional revelation from God. He had seen God. He, God had fulfilled promises to him. In short, God's words at this time were in the context of Abraham's strong reason for knowing that God both existed and was totally trustworthy. Knowing that God existed and he was totally trustworthy. According to Schaefer, Abraham's faith had strong reason for knowing that God existed and he was totally trustworthy. Now, my friend, listen, you have more. 
you have way more reason for faith in God than what Abraham did. You know that God, well, we all know um, that God is the creator and he existed. And by the way, that knowledge right there is the open secret in the scientific world. That God is the creator and he exists. That is the open secret in the scientific world. But we have more than that. We have the entire corpus of scripture. We have unbelievable amounts of archaeology. We have the truthfulness of the Bible. We have the life of Christ. We have 2,000 years of church history. Which means faith in God through Christ is not illogical. It's not irrational. It's completely reasonable and you have way more evidence for it than Abraham did. So what do we see first? What's the nature of Abraham's faith? It's completely reasonable. Here's the second thing we see. We see his faith is verifiably demonstrated. Verifiably demonstrated, meaning his faith had legs to it. It actually was lived out. His faith is demonstrated through action, through living. And of course, that's certainly the case with Abraham here. And in James chapter 2, again, I won't make you turn there, but you can jot it down. James chapter 2, verses 20 through 24. 20, 22 through 24. James chapter 2. James is making the case that... Are you guys awake still? Yes. Okay. Sometimes I talk in my house and people fall asleep. I just want to make sure that doesn't happen here. James... I saw someone just woke up. I saw that. James chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. James is making the case that faith without works is dead. It's not actually real faith. Faith without works is not real faith. Now, listen, our faith never earns our salvation. That only comes about by faith. But a person who is saved will always produce works in keeping with the faith. So in James chapter 2, James is looking back at the scene on Moriah and he says this regarding Abraham. He says, you see that, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Hmm. And the scripture was fulfilled to say that, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see what James is saying? James is saying that Abraham's act of obedience, his act of obedience here, it demonstrated real faith. It verified his faith. And real faith in the Lord always results long term in the obedience of faith. Real, genuine faith in the Lord in the long term of our life, it always results in the obedience of faith where we're becoming more and more obedient to the Lord, to his word, and to his ways. That's always the case. So let me ask you, is that true of you? In your life, over, let's say over the last five years, well, let's just go a year. We'll make it easy. Who can remember five years ago? That was pre-corona. Over the last year, are you becoming more and more obedient in the faith? Where the Lord and his word are shaping you and you're responding more and more obediently to it. That should be the case. Because real faith always is demonstrated through obedience. I feel like Rick and I are quoting the Bonhoeffer quote to you every single week. But it's so good. And where else do you get to say the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer? 
remember Bonhoeffer's quote, only those who believe, obey. Only those who uh, believe, obey, and only those who obey, really believe. Which means, belief and obedience are two sides of the same faith coin. Two sides of the same coin. Real faith is demonstrated. It moves from our head and our heart to our hands in service. Real faith is demonstrated by the way that we live and the way that we love. It's demonstrated by the way that we speak and the way that we serve one another and serve our community. So the nature of faith that we see in Abraham's life, first, it's reasonable. Secondly, it's demonstrated. Lastly, note this, and it's the key, it rests in the provision of another. It rests in the provision of another. Which means the faith of Abraham, ultimately, it points away from Abraham. Your faith isn't in Abraham. Because Abraham's faith wasn't in Abraham. Abraham's faith, it points away from Abraham to God. To the God who sees. To the God who provides. Because ultimately, God provides the true lamb. Christ Jesus. Who when John the Baptist first saw Jesus walking down by the river, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Think about this text. Isaac is led to the very area where the temple would later stand. To the very mount where the cross of Calvary would be erected. And like Isaac, Christ is like a a lamb led to the slaughter. Only he's completely silent. And just as Isaac carries his wood up up uh, up for the altar to the steep mount... So Christ carries his own wooden cross towards the Mount of Calvary. And just as Abraham sacrificially and obediently lays Isaac on the altar, so Christ sacrificially and obediently submits to his Father's will. But here's the difference. And it is a huge difference. God the Father did what Abraham did not have to do. That's the huge difference. God the Father did what Abraham didn't have to do. He made his son a sin offering to demonstrate his love for fallen humanity and to redeem us from all of our sin. This is what a burnt offering did. It was an atoning sacrifice. And what God the Father did is what Abraham didn't have to do. He completely offered his son up. This is exactly what John tells us in 1 John chapter 4. This is what John writes. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. Now notice the language. Just like what Abraham was called to do. Your one and only son. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Don't you see? You read this account and don't you see? This whole account leads us straight to the cross. This whole account leads us to the work of the father and the son on your behalf. Well, that's remarkable. It tells of the work of the father and the son on our behalf. Well, how should we respond Exactly as Abraham did. Huh? How did Abraham respond? When did Abraham respond? Well, in John chapter 8, 
Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees about who their father was. And the Pharisees were saying that Abraham was their father. And Jesus looked at him and said, I don't think so. Abraham's not your father because you've rejected me. He said, this whole time you've been rejecting me. And if your father was really Abraham, you would have been receiving me, not rejecting me. He disputed their claims. It was a, he made this shocking claim. No, he's not actually your father because Abraham received me. And he goes on, he makes a stunning claim. He said to them, your father Abraham rejoiced, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Huh? Well, how did he do that? How did he see the day of Christ's salvation and be glad in it? Here's how. The promise that was given back in Genesis chapter 12, that through Abraham's seed, one would come who would bring salvation for, for all the nations of the earth. Abraham looked with the eyes of faith, and he saw that was Christ, and he rejoiced in that news. He was filled with gratitude over the news that a true son of Abraham would come who would completely redeem the world. He was filled with gr- gratitude over it. So how should you respond? Well, first of all, you should rejoice in the news of the work of the Father and the Son on your behalf, that the Son became the atoning sacrifice for your sins so that you can be completely forgiven, ushered in the new life with Christ, await the resurrected material world where you're going to reign forever with Jesus. You should rejoice over that. It should fill you with gratitude. In fact, you might even say it should fill you with thanksgiving. Yeah, that's exactly what it should do. You should rejoice over that news. Here's the second second thing you should do. Because that news is useless unless you actually receive Christ. News is just news until you apply it to your life. You should rejoice over it. You should receive Christ. Well, how do you receive Christ? Here's how. You know, you open up your heart and your mind to him. And you say, Lord, I actually know this is true. Faith in Christ is not illogical. It's not irrational. It's actually based on history. It's rooted in history. We sang about it this morning. What you have done for me. What you've done for us. It's rooted in history. But you've got to receive him. You come to you open up your heart and your mind to him. You say, Lord, I, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. Would you please forgive me of my sins. Take my life. Let me be one of your children right now. And he'll do it. He'll take you. He'll forgive you of your sins. By the power of his Holy Spirit, he'll forgive you of your sins. He'll give you his life. And you'll be a part of his family forever. So you rejoice over the news. You receive him in faith. Here's the third thing you do. You release yourself to the waters of baptism. And we have a baptism next Sunday, right after church. And if the Lord is moving in your heart and he's calling you to become a part of his family right now through Christ, you should release yourself to the waters of baptism next Sunday. It's the first step of obedience. Isn't this wonderful news? Just marvelous news. This whole thing points us right to the gospel of Christ. So let's stand. I'll pray. And then we'll sing. Father, we thank you for this account of Abraham and Isaac's life and how it points us all the way forward to the cross of Calvary where the work of the Father and the Son jointly, together, in concert, brings to us, to those who receive, the complete forgiveness of sins, new life in Christ's name, 
hope and joy in the life present and anticipation of the life to come in the new age. Father, we are so overwhelmed and filled with gratitude because of what you have done. And we pray that in the days ahead, we would live that out well in the communities in which you've placed us, our families, of course, the places in which we work, the neighborhoods in which we reside. Let the gospel of Christ shape our lives and let it flow from us, Lord, out into those places. We trust you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.